Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That is with another edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and it's Thursday, so you know what that means. We're here to break down every single thing that happened Wednesday night on NXT and AEW, and wouldn't you know it, this week we were gifted with two very special episodes, NXT New Year's Evil and Night One of AEW New Year's Smash, and folks, I promise you, both of these shows freaking delivered, so there is plenty of fun stuff to talk about on today's show. As we get started here, uh, you know, a reminder, head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star review, let us know how much you love the show. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. And for those of you who already follow us on Twitter, you know that um, Wednesday I chose not to tweet during both shows, which I normally do, and I would have been very excited because I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows how much I was looking forward to New Year's Evil and New Year's Smash. Like, I was just completely all in on both shows heading into Wednesday night. And you as listeners know, obviously, I'm an American. Uh, The show is based in the United States. I, I speak English, obviously. Wrestling is huge in Japan and Mexico as well. I don't speak those languages, so this really applies mostly to an American audience and an English language speaking audience. There's a lot of people who listen in Australia, New Zealand, Israel, the United Kingdom. Trust me, it surprises me as much as it might you uh, that there's people listening to this show. Me talk about wrestling all over the world, it's crazy. Um, And this show, we do not talk about politics here, but uh, I am an American and I am someone who, as a child in in middle school, uh, lower school, and I think even a few years, into high school, you know, I slept with an American flag above my bed, not because my father was in the military, uh, not because I had any uh, political uh, affiliation with my family or anything like that. I just was a patriot growing up. And in my adult life, of course, I still am. And I love my country. And to see what happened to it on Wednesday, it, it hurt me personally. And it hurt us as a nation in a significant way. So I had tweeted that I wasn't going to tweet about wrestling, New Year's Evil, and uh, New Year's Smash. Because the truth is, I wasn't sure if I was going to watch wrestling uh, on Wednesday night. And I largely didn't. I made an exception somewhere around 3 a.m., I think it was, uh, to take a break and watch that Finn Balor Kyle O'Reilly match just because I had to see it. And I had to see Kenny Omega and Ray Phoenix also, but I had to pick one just because it was 3 a.m. So I chose to watch that and it lifted my spirits. Yes, a little bit. And I woke up early. I only got about four hours of sleep. I woke up really early and I watched all of New Year's Evil. I watched all of New Year's Smash. No coffee. The Silver King does not imbibe with caffeine. But I watched it all this morning And to say that it lifted my spirits and took my mind a little bit off of what was going on um, would be very accurate because those shows provided me four hours of tremendous wrestling entertainment. I didn't need to 
pick them apart to the level that I did raw for three hours on Monday. I was able to sit back for four hours and largely enjoy in a significant way professional wrestling. And that's really what professional wrestling and entertainment is all about. So wrestling, NXT and AEW was able to do that for me. I hope you guys listening, particularly those of you who are listening from the United States, were able to exercise those internal demons and, and laugh and cheer and, and enjoy what you saw on television. And now I hope that for the rest of this show, and I know I've taken up a portion of the opening talking about this, um, but it is important. But I hope that the rest of the show provides you that entertainment as well. And if I can do that, then this individually will be a successful episode and I will consider this podcast to be a success as well. So let's hope that there's no more further interruptions of our wrestling viewing. Let's hope that when you follow us on Twitter at getting overcast, the Silver King will be able to tweet about professional wrestling live as it happens and not have to worry about watching something else on television. So with that, let's get to talking NXT New Year's Evil and AEW Dynamite's New Year's Smash. We are going to start with New Year's Evil, which I felt from top to bottom, start of the two hours to the end of the two hours, was the better overall show, despite not having the best match across those four four hours of television on Wednesday night. But we're starting with NXT, and Dexter Loomis was obviously the host of this show. I'll be blunt, the opening of NXT with Loomis, it was really stupid. It lacked energy, it lacked excitement. The crowd didn't react when he eventually flipped the switch. The show is called New Year's Evil. They should have opened with Karrion Cross making his entrance. It's not hard. Like, Trips, you're, you're way smarter than that. The Dexter Loomis stuff did not work for me as the quote-unquote host of this show, but I get that they wanted to get him involved. I should also note that the Fight Pit match was originally scheduled for this show. Kayfabe due to injury, but probably, my guess, because the show was overbooked and just too long, it was delayed and pushed off. It was not held on Wednesday night. I'm totally fine with that because Tommaso Ciampa, Timothy Thatcher in a fight pit is something that should main event a regular NXT show. It shouldn't just be thrown in in a takeover-like two hours with a bunch of commercials. There was enough on the program as well. And when we talk about enough on the program, we talk about the main event. That's where we really start here. The NXT Championship on the line, Finn Balor defending against Kyle O'Reilly. O'Reilly broke a submission early by getting his mouth on the middle rope, and Balor punted his head in a receipt for Balor's broken jaw from their last match. He concentrated on O'Reilly's face and jaw, kept going back to it even as O'Reilly tried to exert some offense. O'Reilly punted Balor in the chest, flew outside, came back in with a triangle, then a double heel hook. Balor punched O'Reilly in the jaw to escape it, just continued drilling him with forearms as Balor himself was selling an injured left arm throughout the match. Balor put a crossface on O'Reilly. He escaped with some palm thrusts. Balor came back with a sling blade, a double stomp, and a huge missile dropkick to the face. O'Reilly stopped the coup de grace by kicking the ropes, and then he hit a superplex. There was a double pinfall barely kicked out by both guys. They did it simultaneously. O'Reilly followed with a brain buster and locked up the left arm, but Balor quickly got to the ropes as he got busted open in the head. Balor countered a charge with a liver shot, just like in their first match, a kidney shot, I'm sorry, just like in the first match. 
uh, and then started drilling it with elbows in an abdominal stretch type of move. Then he took the abdominal stretch to the canvas. Balor locked O'Reilly's jaw with one hand while stretching the kidney with the other, leading O'Reilly to tap because he couldn't get anywhere near the ropes and he was in so much pain from the two different parts of his body that Balor had targeted. So Undisputed Era after the match and the referee went over to O'Reilly to check on him in the corner. Balor walked over to stare at O'Reilly, but the referee pushed him away. So he stuck out his tongue and stared out the camera as the show ended. So I ultimately had some mixed feelings about this match. On one hand, it was a total banger. Balor and O'Reilly, they laid it in heavy the entire match again. And there was incredible storytelling in the rematch with the jaw and the kidney shots in particular. Balor using a simple submission like an abdominal stretch, but bringing it to the ground like that and winning a title match with it is just such smart booking because it attacked O'Reilly's two problem areas of the jaw and the kidney, as we mentioned. Balor looked awesome in the post-match, a bit demonic and evil with blood streaming from his head. On the other hand, the director missed the tap out live because the camera was focused on O'Reilly's face. And it's really tough to compare this match to their first, which was a five-star match, because this one just, for me at least, it kept feeling like it was rushed. And that was NXT's fault because it booked an extra match on the show that didn't need to be there. There was a planned overrun and there were no commercials, but it still only ran like 17 minutes or so. It started at like 9.49 p.m. That's not really acceptable given it was for the NXT title and the opening match of the show, the opening segment with the entrances and all that had like 25 to 27 minutes by comparison. So if you're gonna give that much time to a Haas fight, you should at least be able to give that same amount of time to your NXT title main event rematch of a five-star match that ended last year that people wanted to see again. So it ends up being really damn good, borderline great. It's definitely an early match of the year contender, but I think as we move on throughout the year, it's gonna get forgotten. It didn't really hit home in a way where you're like, oh my God, let's not forget that match. Whereas there was a match in AEW that we'll talk about in a little bit that is certainly also a match of the year contender, rated higher than this one most likely, and will be one of those matches, I think, that by the time we get to the end of the year 12 months from now, we say, hey, let's not forget about that match that was on New Year's Smash night one. So was this good borderline great? Absolutely. Did it miss the mark in a couple key areas? For me personally, it did. That's just how I feel about it. We also had a big time women's match, Rhea Ripley against Raquel Gonzalez in a last woman standing match. And you guys know my thoughts on last man slash woman standing matches, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Gonzalez was on fire out of the gate with two fallaway slams right away. The weapons came out quickly. Rhea wore out a kendo stick right on Gonzalez. Then she handcuffed her to the fence around the ring only for Gonzalez to just rip the fence and leave it, I think, stuck on her wrist, I think, for the remainder of the match, but I could be wrong about that. They did a spot with the timekeeper's bell, and then Gonzalez buried Ripley with pieces of an announce table that exploded for the first count. Gonzalez ran stairs into Ripley twice on the stage and booted her down a more permanent set of stairs. Ripley then drove Gonzalez straight through a glass door that shattered. Both got up at eight from the count. Ripley climbed atop some random lockers that were at the side of the stage, did the DX chop, and then hit a senton 
through that really crappy NXT snack table. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but like they keep showing the snack table and it's a table with a black cloth on it with just like little packages of pretzels and chips. And for some reason, it's like the catering for NXT and it just happens to be there every time they go in the backstage area. I think that's just really funny. But you hit a senton on that and it was a pretty far fall. It was a great spot. And I thought that might actually end the match. But to my somewhat surprise, it was not. Ripley was up up at seven. Gonzalez got up at nine. And then suddenly Dakota Kai runs in with a kendo stick and starts beating the hell out of Ripley. So Ripley then takes Kai, slams her into like the front of a locker, uses a door to knock her out, literally folds her in half, almost like in a cartoon, shoves her into a bottom half of one of the lockers, and then slides a road case in front of it. So Dakota Kai is just locked away. And I guess she has a new home because no one came to save her. It, it was hysterical. Really a legitimately funny moment in a brutal match. And it's very rare that you can kind of mix all of that together. But the Ripley Kai stuff was pretty funny there. When Ripley finally got back to the stage chasing after Gonzalez, Gonzalez was there to drill her with a chair. Ripley answered with an inverted cloverleaf and tried to wrap a chair around Gonzalez's neck while she was in the cloverleaf. When she pushed out, Ripley flew headfirst into the point of a sign. And I'm just sitting there like, holy crap, these women are going after it. I, I don't see no water. I ain't see no bread. All we're getting is freaking meat. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. So Ripley then comes back, catches Gonzalez, who's running at her, with a Death Valley driver into the big X atop the stage. But Gonzalez ends up like nailing her into the steel, steel steps, catches her while she's climbing up of them, lifts her with her finisher, that chokeslam powerbomb with the leg over the shoulder, and slams her through the freaking stage. Gonzalez rolled out of the hole they created at eight, and Ripley was stuck inside after taking the weight of the entire move. Ripley sold really heavy after the match. She actually needed to be helped out of it by five referees. And then throughout the entire ensuing commercial break, they stayed picture in picture while Ripley was selling the effects of, of the, the move and the loss, while referees literally had to help her just to stand. So you guys all know, I hate last man, last woman standing matches. But this is one of the better ones I can even remember for a couple of reasons. Number one, there were limited counts. So we weren't getting the referee counting 30 times. I think it was limited to like five or six counts, maybe even, honestly, there might've been less, but I think it was like five counts over the course of the entire match. And all of them came at a time where something impactful happened. And most of them, you thought a fall was a possibility, primarily when Ripley did the senton off the lockers. But it wasn't really just that. The finish was super clean. It does hurt to see Rhea Ripley continue to lose, but it seems to me like it's a pretty concerted effort for her to be putting everyone over on her way out of NXT. And if I had to guess, I think you're going to see Rhea Ripley show up in the Royal Rumble as one of the entrants. I wouldn't be surprised if she won the entire thing. But I think that Wednesday night is the last time we see Rhea Ripley in NXT. Maybe next week there's a farewell because they do that, but they haven't really done the farewells on television. They've primarily kept those to 
like takeovers where the live crowd will give a cheer. And then the next week you'll see them show up on Raw or something like that. Because Royal Rumble is so far out. I mean, look, she could show up on Raw Monday and it is, I don't know. Hell, she could stay in NXT and I could be totally wrong. But with Ripley continuing to lose, I just feel like there's nothing else for her to do there. What's crazy is she's 24 years old and she's ready for the main roster now. She would be one of the best women on the main roster now, as soon as she gets up there. Gonzalez, on the other hand, truly needed this win to establish herself as a main event heel in NXT and to establish herself further ahead of an eventual title match with Io Shirai. We've talked about that in the past and we will talk about it in the future. Ultimately, this was a banger. Would I have preferred a regular match or a false count anywhere? Yes, I think false count anywhere, again, even in this spot would have been better. But these two, individually and together, completely owned this moment. Ripley did a great job putting Gonzalez over. Gonzalez looked like an absolute beast. And I don't think this was necessarily better than the Balor-O'Reilly match, but it was right there. It, it It was shoulder to shoulder with it. Really high quality women's match. And one of the three best matches that we saw across both shows on Wednesday night. Now I do have a DM slide here from Eldred Ryan at Acme, A-K-M-E Tunes. He said, what do you think about Rhea Ripley winning the Rumble and challenging Charlotte for the Raw Women's title at WrestleMania? I know Asuka is champion, but it's only a matter of time before they put the title on Charlotte. I think it's really smart. You talk about what happened last year with Charlotte winning the Royal Rumble, challenging Ripley, actually taking the title off of her, and Ripley kind of spending the last year, you know, the word buried isn't correct, but floundering somewhat in NXT. She had wins, but it was nothing really that you could hang on to. She didn't win the title back. And you're kind of wondering why they pushed her so hard at the end of 2019 only to take the title off of her after four months. This would be a nice come around. If you have Ripley win the Women's Royal Rumble and face Flair or even if you get into a situation where you have a triple threat with Asuka, Flair, and Ripley, you're talking about a potential all-time women's WrestleMania match there. When we were just talking about having one, a couple of years ago, right? So, and, and Ripley and, and Flair from last year were great as well. I do think that's a great piece of booking if they go in that direction. I would hate to just have Flair turn heel and take the title off Oscar because that's what WWE always does. But if this was the ultimate result of that, then I think it makes a lot more sense. I just, right now, it doesn't seem like Asuka is going to be defending the title at the Royal Rumble. And then you have a very short runway between the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania. So for all of that to happen in short order would be pretty difficult. Now let's move on to the opening match of NXT, which was Karrion Cross against Damian Priest. As I suspected when we previewed this match, Priest is simply the best foil for Cross right now in NXT. They operate at similar speeds, they match up well, and this match was indeed a banger. Priest hit a flatliner and a twisting neckbreaker for a two. He got a long run of offense on Cross including a springboard senton I did not expect. Cross hit Priest with the Tree of Woe and drove an exposed knee into his chest. It was a pretty brutal spot despite a Tree of Woe being very common as a maneuver. Priest hit a full effort razor's edge, but he couldn't capitalize. Then he had a step-up Topicon Giro flip over the top rope to the outside and then a spinning heel kick off the ropes followed by South of Heaven. Wow. 
But despite all of that, he only got a flat two count. Cross countered the reckoning with a powerbomb, but Priest came back with two spinning heel kicks outside before Priest ran him into the scaffolding, slammed him on the stairs, and these guys, just like the women later in the show, were absolutely banging. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> I feel like that's a sound that should probably be exclusive to the men, so that's why I used the other one for the women earlier, but nevertheless, this was indeed two big meaty men slapping meat. Cross stared down Priest in the ring late in the match, and it was very NJPW style, where you're like, okay, this is now going to be the finish. Like these guys, they've hit each other so hard. They've gone through so much. It's now or never. And that's what happened. It was very cool and very weird. You don't see that a lot in American wrestling. You never see it in WWE, but it happened here. Uh, Cross stared him down, like I said. Priest mouthed a couple words like, come at me. So Cross hit a Saito suplex, followed by a forearm to the back of the head for a one, two, three. I thought this was really good. It was easily Cross's best match in NXT. Priest did, though, carry him throughout the entire thing. It did a lot to raise Cross's profile, and it was a really good commercial-free opening match. You never felt as if the pace had slowed to a level where you were bothered by it or not exactly sure if it would hit your expectations. But this actually somehow exceeded my expectations as an opener, and if I've said it once, I've said it a bunch of times, Priest is awesome. He's broken out in a major way and completely exceeded any expectation I ever had for him. He could easily be on the main roster. He could have been on the main roster yesterday. And honestly, I think he's going to be on the main roster very soon. I would not be surprised if that is the last time you see Damian Priest in NXT. We've been talking about it. We want him to get that main title push. But the truth is that in NXT, many times there are wrestlers who just never get the main title before they go over to the WWE main roster. And I think Priest is just gonna be one of those guys that he had the North American title. He had a pretty decent run with it. We would have liked it to have gone longer and then not do the back and forth with Gargano and then usually on rough in that scenario. I would have liked Priest to just kind of have a title run for four to six months and, and beat a bunch of great people. But he still had a nice run. The title gave him, I think, some of the confidence that had been missing. And he is 100% now ready to go to Raw or SmackDown, either show, probably a better fit on SmackDown. There's way too many mid-carters on Raw right now. I'm ready. Put Priest on the main roster. I know they're going to be pushing Cross into the main event. I know a lot of you aren't huge fans of carrying Cross in ring. I'm not either. But it's pretty clear that NXT has decided they want to go with him sooner than later. We had three more matches on the show. We can get through these pretty quick. Cruiserweight Championship, Santos Escobar defeated Grand Metalik. Metalik hit a bunch of crazy springboard moves. There was a botch where Escobar was supposed to catch a Hurricanrana and then powerbomb him outside, but he saved it by flinging Metalik into the barricade. Escobar dropped him off his shoulders onto the top turnbuckle. Metalik nailed the springboard plancha off the second rope to the outside. Escobar tried to remove Metalik's mask and then pushed him off the top rope. Lince Dorado sacrificed himself into the rest of Legado del Fantasma as Metalik hit a Hurricanrana for another near fall. Escobar caught Metalik off the top again and then hit the Phantom Driver for the win. It was a fine match. It really fell below expectations. With Escobar and Metalik, I expected this to slap the entire time. There were some decent moments and there were some decent moves, but there were like three botches and, you know, it was just good in the end. Not great, never came anywhere near what I expected. 
We also had Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae. They were sitting atop a convertible and got a police escort. The lights were green and white though, so it was probably more of a security service that WWE hired. But they got a quote-unquote police escort to the arena. It must have been pre-taped because otherwise they probably should have gone without this given what was happening in reality. But it did lead to their entrance and otherwise their entrance probably would not have made sense if they didn't do that. But they probably also could have just shown them coming to the ring. The way he was celebrating in the ring. Gargano got a plaque. Austin Theory called him a superhero. And then they revealed a comic of them all as heroes. Shotzi Blackheart interrupted with her tank and shot Theory, I think in the nuts, with her cannon. Uh, it was a really funny spot. She was able to fight with Candice, which is really good because it means Candice's arm is okay. We thought it was broken at War Games, but it looks like Candice is able to wrestle and go. That's great. Gargano threatened to fight Shotzi, so all of a sudden Kushida ran in for the save. Loomis then rang the bell and declared it would be a mixed tag team match. So you had Gargano and Larray against Kushida and Shotzi Blackheart. A lot happened here in quick succession. It was actually tough to keep up with because all four of them are incredible and there were just a lot of moves at the beginning. Shotzi hit a bullet type of tope suicida. Theory pushed Kushida off the top rope. So Kushida threw him into the ring and made Gargano headbutt him with a drop to hold into his crotch for a second time. Kushida then caught Gargano in a really inventive pinning combination to get a clean one, two, three. What was especially great about this match is it means we are going to get Gargano and Kushida in a North American championship feud. Plus, they're going to rekindle the Shotzi Blackheart, Candice LeRae feud. Those are both really good pieces of news. We were thinking that Kushida was getting built up to possibly contend for the NXT title. It now looks more likely, of course, especially given this, that he's going to contend for the North American championship. And I know that the title has been passed around a lot recently, but whenever that happens, I wouldn't mind Kushida ultimately getting the win. There is a takeover that's been announced for Sunday, February 14th, which is really just a month away. So if they build that match for that show, it would make a lot of sense to me uh, to have Kushida go ahead and win the title there. We also had Zia Lee against Katina Cortez. Katrina, maybe it was, Cortez. Zia Lee did a bunch of karate moves with a sword during a quick vignette that was aired before her official return. The entrance that she made was incredible. The mysterious woman was sitting on a throne. There was a ton of smoke. All of a sudden, Zia Lee and Boa show up by her side. And then Zia Lee had like this type of, it wasn't a mask, like a, a shield over her face. It was removed and Boa unveiled her. Boa looked like he was like Mr. Anderson in the Matrix or something like that. Uh, Zia Lee then did a bunch of karate moves, got into the ring. She looked like a total badass. She no-sold a lot, hit a jumping knee, and an insane roundhouse kick. I think it was Trouble in Paradise, like Kofi Kingston's finisher, but she hit a roundhouse kick. It took Cortez's head off. Like, if there was a beheading there, I would not have been surprised. It was crazy, the impact that we got from it. For me, this was a great repackaging. I hope Boa gets an opportunity to wrestle and shine on his own. But for right now, Zia Lee, new repackaged Zia Lee, two thumbs up. Mercedes Martinez also issued a challenge. She said it felt great to be back and Io Shirai didn't look like the best wrestler in the company, the award she won from the NXT Awards uh, when she just took her ass out last week. The promo was probably the singular best thing Martinez has done in WWE so far with the exception of the cage match with Rhea Ripley. But it was a great promo. Martinez felt legit. And I got more out of that promo than I actually got out of the attack last week. Bronson Reed 
cut a really quick ringside promo, said he's ready to unleash his inner savage in 2021 and make this year his year. Also on the show, uh, William Regal announced the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic is returning. Undisputed Era, Ever Rise, Brizongo, Kurt Stallion and Austin Gray, uh, Drake Maverick and Killian Dane, Imperium, and the Grizzled Young Veterans were all announced for the event. Later in the show, Gargano and Theory said they would be in it as well. Adam Cole and Roderick Strong said they will represent Undisputed Era. They cut a promo about it. Uh, There was also a promo posted on Twitter with Swerve walking up to Jake Atlas and suggesting that they team up. What's weird is there's already eight teams announced. So I don't know what they're doing. If they're planning to go to 16, if they're planning to have a couple of buys, it doesn't seem like that because they've already announced two matches for next week. So I'm not sure what else they're doing, but it seems like they're just going to be stuck at eight for the Dusty Rhodes Classic. And I just read the teams off to you. You know, it's fine. Like the teams aren't that exciting. But I do think if you add... Swerve and Atlas, if you add the tag team champions, Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch, can you go ahead and find six other tag teams? That's the question. And we'll have to see what ends up happening. William Regal later in the show announced there would indeed be a women's version of the event coming soon, which is awesome as well. So that huge stacked women's division, that's going to pay off and we're going to get a women's Dusty Rhodes tag team classic. So as far as wrapping up NXT New Year's Evil, I think Keith Lee will probably say it best. That's the most action I've had all year. I mean, we were only six days into the year, but top to bottom, that was the best show that we've gotten. And that I do include New Year's Smash. I also include Wrestle Kingdom. Now, I'm only saying that because I'm talking about top to bottom. Wrestle Kingdom was very top heavy on both nights. If you took the best matches from both nights, Wrestle Kingdom blows away New Year's Evil. It's not even a question. Uh, But... Top to bottom, NXT New Year's Evil as a two-hour show, all the matches we got on there, it was a really damn good two hours, very, very entertaining. But between New Year's Evil, Wrestle Kingdom, and AEW New Year's Smash, we got a shit ton of great wrestling in a very short period of time. So let's not waste any time, really. Let's move right over to AEW. And we actually have to start with Impact on Tuesday. Now, I did watch that very first week that Kenny Omega was on Impact, I no longer watch Impact, but I do catch every single clip that involves AEW online. So just to be clear, Tony Khan and Tony Schiavone did another paid ad. I think last week or last time this happened, I said I was over it, but you know what? This kind of won me back because this was mostly a promotion for New Year's Smash, but Khan talked a lot of shit to Don Callis saying he's a parasite while Khan is a patron for professional wrestling. I do give Tony Khan crap sometimes, but... He really does nail these. He's doing a great job. So you know what? I'm okay. Keep doing the paid ads. I just think that eventually they're going to get old. So be a little careful. Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers also commiserated in Omega's trailer with Don Callis. They talked up their six-man tag team match at Hard to Kill and said Bullet Club for life. At another point in the show, Rich Swan and Motor City Machine Guns tried to get Omega out of his trailer, but it turns out they were already outside. So they attacked them all from behind in the parking lot. So that takes us into... AEW Dynamite New Year's Smash. And we will talk about Kenny Omega in a moment. But first, John Moxley did return uh, for the first time since losing the AEW title. He called Don Callis a used car salesman, said normally he'd go and take out Kenny Omega, but he wants Ray Phoenix to have a clean shot at the title. Moxley said Omega will never be safe. He'll get even with him and then some. 
Moxley, at least in my opinion, is far better chasing than actually being champion. It was true in WWE, and it's true once again in AEW. I felt this promo absolutely proved it. Great stuff from Mox, top to bottom. So let's move right to the main event, the AEW World Championship, Kenny Omega against Ray Phoenix. And I told you guys last week, going in, I expected this to be the match of the night across both brands. It absolutely freaking delivered. Timing-wise, this was done right. With two of the world's best getting a full 20 minutes. There were like four Huracaranas in the first two minutes. Omega caught Phoenix rolling over the barricade with an awesome Snapdragon on the outside. Phoenix had a ridiculous double springboard dropkick and then a rolling Tope Suicida into the barricade. Phoenix came back with a springboard flip over Omega and then hit a sick German suplex again. This guy, man, he is he is just amazing. Honestly, you watch him and you're like, he's not human, he's a cat. Like what else could this guy be but a cat? Because human beings don't move the way Ray Phoenix does. Next came a double stomp to the back of Omega's neck. And all of that that I just said happened in the first 10 minutes. That was the first half of the match. We got the final 13 minutes of AEW without commercial. Phoenix ate a V-trigger, immediately kipped up, and booted Omega in the face. That was crazy. Omega countered a tornillo with a knee, hit a V-trigger, but got a pair of two counts. Don Callis then distracted Phoenix outside, giving Omega an opening. But Phoenix ran up the ropes into the ring for a cutter and then hit a thunder driver for a 2.9. Phoenix then did a tribute to Eddie Guerrero, you know, shaking his shoulders on the top rope, but wasted too much time and Omega got his knees up to block a frog splash, then caught Phoenix in midair for a tiger driver, followed by a V-trigger for a 2.5, but he didn't waste any time, picked him right up for a one-winged angel for the one, two, three without any interference. This was... Easily the best match of the night across both shows. No surprise whatsoever. You're talking about two of the 10 best wrestlers in the world, given plenty of time to go at it. It was unique in that Phoenix got at least two thirds of the offense in the match, which I didn't fully expect. I thought Omega was going to use his size and his dominance as world champion. But since he's working the heel side, he really let Phoenix get most of the offense. I also loved the booking with Omega coming through strong in the end. It was way less storyline driven than the NXT match. So the NXT match gets extra credit for being storyline driven, but the wrestling here was far more exciting and far more entertaining. It was just such a great match from top to bottom. So Callus after the match, showed footage of Eddie Kingston, Butcher, and The Blade beating up Pac and Penta L0M backstage. Omega then went after Phoenix only for Moxley to come out and beat him with a barbed wire bat. Suddenly, the Good Brothers ran in with the Impact Tag Team titles and took out Moxley with the Magic Killer. Omega then beat him with the barbed wire bat. The Varsity Blondes ran in but got vanquished. Then others from the crowd ran in and got beaten anyway. It was chaotic, but it was actually a good chaos as opposed to some of those other AEW endings we've gotten recently, where it's chaos for the sake of chaos, this all had a purpose, and that's why I appreciated it. Eventually, the Young Bucks ran down and looked like they were trying to talk everyone down. Omega then puts up the two sweet, and the Good Brothers do, and the Young Bucks were like thinking about it a little bit, then they put up the two sweet as well, maybe a bit regrettably, as AEW went off the air. 
The finish was probably about two minutes too long. It just was meandering and it took so long for everything to happen. It almost felt like they finished early and they were just trying to fill some time, but it did its job making you want to tune in next week to see what happens. I would not be surprised if the ultimate resolution out of all of this is we get a blood and guts match, which AEW has not yet been able to put on with the Bullet Club, the Young Bucks, the Good Brothers, and Kenny Omega against John Moxley and four other guys. Maybe it's Moxley, the Motor City Machine Guns, Rich Swan, and one additional person, like Darby Allen or something like that. I don't know. But that I could see that happening and that being the ultimate resolution to the storyline that they're all playing out. So that was ultimately a very successful main event for AEW. And I think any momentum that NXT may have had trying to get viewers over, I mean, I'm sure they came over for the overrun anyway, but it was just too freaking good for there to make there be any reason for anyone to switch the channel. It was awesome and a huge success for AEW. They deserve a lot of credit for booking that entire thing the way they did. Uh, Cody Rhodes defeated Matt Slidell. The Snoop Dogg version of Cody's entrance was absolutely terrible. Uh, You could tell it was forced and just like rammed together. Chris Jericho was screaming on commentary that Snoop Dogg has jumped to AEW. He said it like four times. Like, dude, come on. Uh, I'm not going to criticize it too much more because it was all promotion for TNT's new show. So I get they want AEW to be team players. I just felt Jericho was not so much out of line. I just thought it was stupid. Really tribal and really stupid. I thought we were past that shit, you know? Uh, Cody accidentally hit Serpentico in the crowd when Seidel ducked away. He then attempted a sharpshooter, but it looked awful. A commentary even kind of noted how bad it looked. Cody got double knees up to block a shooting star press. He hit a reverse DDT, but Seidel locked a Cobra clutch for a second and got a couple near falls with pinning combinations. Cody eventually hit crossroads twice for the one, two, three. All of a sudden, Serpentico and Luther ran in to attack Cody. Seidel helped with a couple kicks. Snoop then stopped Seidel from going to the top rope and freaking jumped off the top rope with the worst splash you'll ever see, but still really freaking funny. And Cody counted the one, two, three. The match was actually the best of the night to its point in the show, but the Snoop stuff was pretty great considering he's 49 years old. I don't care that the splash looked like crap. He's an older man who doesn't wrestle doing something like that. So it was pretty funny. I don't know if it got social media buzz or not. Again, because I wasn't really paying attention while the show was on. I enjoyed it. I thought the match was pretty good. But if you're wondering why I thought New Year's Evil was more successful top to bottom than New Year's Smash, it's simply because this was the second best match on the show. Whereas New Year's Evil had three matches that were better than the Cody Rhodes match. Of course, again, Omega Phoenix, best match, but then the next three, two, three, and four were all NXT matches. We also had a women's, uh, AEW Women's Championship match, Karushita defeating Abaddon. The women came on 15 minutes earlier than normal, 75 minutes into the show, maybe because it was a title match, maybe just how it was booked. Abaddon attacked Sheeta on the stage and Sheeta hit her straight in the head with a kendo stick, but Abaddon just sat right up. Later, Abaddon gnawed on Sheeta's thigh on the ring apron and slammed her into the barricade. Abaddon then pulled Sheeta under the ring and emerged with blood pouring out of her mouth. Sheeta came out with a huge mark on her neck. I don't mind blood. I don't mind TV 14, any of that. This was a little too gory for me. Like seeing blood pouring out of someone's mouth 
it was just a step beyond what I want from Abaddon. Even though I like the Abaddon gimmick, it was just a little too much for me. Uh, commentary though, basically shit on Abaddon's gimmick throughout the entire match, which was annoying and insulting. Hey, there's, there, they were like, there's so many people who have done this before, like pulling people under the ring and biting them. Like, okay, yeah, but she's your talent. She's the one that you should be pushing. It doesn't matter if Kane pulled people under the ring before or Gangrel, you know, gnawed on people's necks before. It, just push your talent and put her over. And instead they just kind of shit on her almost the entire time. It was annoying and pretty insulting for me as a viewer. After the commercial, Sheeta hit Tamashita. The commercial took away much of the finish. So it kind of just came out of nowhere. You're like, wow, Abaddon's really getting over on Sheeta. They come back from commercial. This is like a minute, Sheeta hits her finisher and wins. So I just thought that was kind of weird. They got 10 minutes total. It was probably better than most women's segments we've had, but it just didn't hit in any meaningful way. And it paled in comparison to what we got over in NXT, of course, from the women's division. We had Wardlow defeat Jake Hager. The inner circle watched from atop the stage and Jericho was on commentary the entire night. This match, you know, it it largely wasn't good. They wanted you to worry about the meat inside the shirt. Don't worry about the shirt. Worry about the meat inside the shirt. But I was never really that worried by the meat. It just, it was good. It was a hoss fight, but it wasn't a good hoss fight, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, they commentary was selling every move like it was Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, and it wasn't, not by any means. Wardlow was once again the impressive one. He had a German suplex and a senton atomico for two. Then he lifted Hager and hit the F10, which is legitimately crazy to do with a guy Hager's size. And he got a relatively easy win, so that was kind of surprising. They bumped hands in respect after the match. You know, Wardlow getting the win was certainly the right call because Wardlow's the prospect. He's the one where you can make him into a world champion. Hager, for me, is largely worthless. But this just could not compare even to a Damian Priest versus Karrion Cross match on the other show. Um, you know, I want to see Wardlow do much better things than fight Jake Hager. Later in the show, MJF went up to Hager backstage to provide him some motivation after the loss. Clearly, to get Hager on his side as he continues to try and take over Inner Circle. That I liked. I still like that they, you know, he's putting on, MJF is putting on a good face, but he's still deep down someone who's trying to screw over the group. The show opened with the Young Bucks and SCU defeating the acclaimed and TH2. Now this was an exciting match. I could go over all the flippy moves, but it would just take forever. I particularly enjoyed the finish with Nick Jackson changing his mind midair, basically, after he was jumped off the top rope and then doing a springboard splash outside while Christopher Daniels helped with the best Meltzer ever for the one, two, three. SCU then challenged the Young Bucks to the tag team title match. They shook hands. It wasn't clear when that match might happen, but it does feel like it's a long time coming in AEW. There was a weigh-in for the TNT title. The new TNT title debuted and it was basically exactly the same as the old one, but with a black strap. It's an improvement, Sure, but really just a marginal improvement, if anything. Brian Cage clocked in at 272, while Arby was 170. Arby said he's dealt with this shit, referring to bullying his whole life. And just as Taz was about to have his guys attack four-on-one, again, Sting's music hit, again, and they all ran away, again, despite having a four-on-two advantage. The exact same shit every week. You guys can like this if you want. 
We talked on Tuesday about WWE repeating the same segments and matches over and over again. This is no different. It's been like five weeks now. It's stupid and boring. It was exciting the first time last week on the tribute episode, having Sting and Darby Allen come out of the same entrance. That was kind of interesting, a little twist, but it's the same thing every freaking week. Don't advertise Sting will be on the show. And then that is all Sting does. I mean, if you're going to shit on WWE for booking things like that, you gotta be equal opportunity criticizers here. You gotta crap on AEW for this. It's great that Sting is there, but he doesn't do anything. He hasn't said anything of relevance. It's really ridiculous. Later on, FTR interrupted Marco Stunt, who was saying Jurassic Express is focused on the tag team titles. They called Stunt useless and a loser, so Stunt challenged them to a tag team match, taking Luchasaurus' spot with Jungle Boy. I'm way over Stunt, but I am actually interested to see how these four work together in a ring because there is a huge contrast in styles between FTR and then the team of Jungle Boy and Marco Stunt. I also like that they're giving us this as an interim match because we know that really the match that they're booking right now is FTR versus Jurassic Express. So save that for a couple of weeks. Give us this in the interim. I'm kind of curious to see what happens in this match next week. Private Party brought the gin and they were looking for the juice, which Snoop Dogg brought over to them and they popped when they saw Snoop. So I thought that was kind of cool. Matt Hardy came in with new contracts and had them all sign over about 30% of their, I guess, salary. He then took a shot at WWE saying, Private Party, don't worry, you can still do all of that third party platform stuff. Big eye roll for me. Like, great job, Matt. You took another big shot at WWE. Congratulations. Uh, Chuck was depressed uh, that Trent will be out for a few months with an injury. So Miro interrupted the interview and challenged him next week, adding a stipulation that if Chuck loses, he becomes his young boy, basically his servant, uh, after Kip Sabian, until after Kip Sabian's wedding. No thoughts here. I actually thought Miro's promo was pretty good for once. It's going to be a good match. Miro against Chuck should be super entertaining, you know, but we'll judge it uh, as it plays out. This storyline has been going on, I mean, three months now, and there's really been nothing of any substance to it. All because what? We're still, because he broke a video game? That's, we're still feuding? Okay. Uh, Do better with Miro as usual. Do better with Sting as usual. It's just kind of frustrating to have all that kind of intertwined in what was a very good episode of AEW Dynamite. I, I know there's some criticism here towards the end. I tried to save it, but you know, Ray Phoenix and Kenny Omega was great. Uh, the Cody match I enjoyed. Wardlow, I'm glad that he's getting shine, even though I didn't particularly love that match with Jake Hager. And the opening match, I actually didn't talk about it long enough because there were so many moves that I just couldn't kind of put all together, but it was very entertaining. Young Bucks SCU against Acclaimed in TH2. So, you know, as we break this down, there is a night two of AEW New Year's Smash coming up next week. And since we won't really have an opportunity to preview it, let's kind of talk about it here as briefly as we can. We have Chuck Taylor against Miro in a singles match. I have to believe Miro wins. Pac against Eddie Kingston in a singles match. Again, have to believe Pac wins unless there's interference or something like that. Maybe Penta's too injured or Phoenix can't be there, so they get a three-on-two advantage. But if it's one-on-one, you have to think the returning Pac gets the win. Serena Deeb defends the NWA World Women's Championship against Ty Conchi. Serena Deeb's going to retain the title. Uh, you know, We'll see if it gets any more than nine minutes, 30 minutes into the show. Uh, FTR, 
against Jungle Boy and Marco Stunt. Has to be FTR winning that. I mean, they could do a surprise roll-up finish where Jungle Boy beats one of them and they freak out. But I think you do that probably more with Jurassic Express as opposed to with Marco Stunt being the second guy. Stunt being in the match makes him a really easy person for them to pin. And that's the direction I think they go. And then we have, it says here, the elite Kenny Omega, Matt Jackson, and Nick Jackson versus TBA. But I don't really know who that is. Apparently that is coming from a tweet from AEW. They're going to be in a six-man tag team match. I'll take them, sure. I don't even know who they're fighting yet. And then, you know, this won't be the main event, but the biggest title match on the card is Darby Allen against Brian Cage for the TNT Championship. And I could certainly see Brian Cage winning the title here, but man, if you're using Darby Allen and you're bringing in Sting and considering all Sting has done to this point is show up and intimidate people, you kind of think like Cage is gonna be about to finish Darby. The lights go out, Sting intimidates him, Darby catches Cage, rolls him up one, two, three, something like that is how that finishes. So night two really doesn't compare at all Tonight one because it does not have that Omega Phoenix match, but it still should be a pretty decent show for AEW next week. We do not have the NXT card, so I can't really preview that. Ultimately though, the result is this Wednesday did provide, at least the shows themselves provided, a pretty nice distraction for the Silver King. Hopefully you all as well and doing the show, I hope you guys were all entertained by my takes on NXT New Year's Evil, which does get the check mark in the head-to-head battle this week over AEW Dynamite New Year Smash, though once again, Kenny Omega versus Ray Phoenix gets the check mark for match of the night, and it really wasn't, in my opinion, even close. So thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review to let us know how much you love this very unique show of ours. We will be back on Tuesday to talk all things WWE. I will speak to you then. This is the Silver King saying goodbye. And with that, I have three words left for you. Bye for now.